0: So last week, uh, we understood a fundamental, uh, we answered a fundamental question. Oops. We answered a fundamental question. What is the church supposed to be? And the answer that we landed on was that the church is supposed to be a fellowship and a celebration of difference. Okay? Each and every one of us different in all manner of ways, but we're supposed to not only fellowship and be united to one another, but we're supposed to celebrate that. The church is God's world changing social experiment. And what he is doing is bringing unlikes and difference to the same table to share life as a new kind of family. And that's a pretty big deal because we all, we all see families and we don't all see great families. We often see dysfunctional families, but this is supposed to be a functional family that is bringing glory to God. And we're supposed to show the world what love looks like through this family. We're supposed to show the world what justice, peace, reconciliation, and even life together are designed to be. Um, do we always do that well? No, we do not. Are we still striving for it? I hope so, right? That, that should be the aim at all times, right? And when we do this, this is actually what true unity is all about. It's a unity, by the way, that God created, and it's a unity that we're called to preserve. That's it. God creates the unity. We preserve the unity, okay? I've got a quote on the screen here. Joni Erikson Tata said that believers are never told to become one. They're never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. It's the acting like it that is so hard, (laughs) right? It's the acting like it. It's the living together. So how are we to do that? What is necessary? What are the components necessary for preserving unity, for living in peace uh, in this family that God has adopted us into? Well, over the remaining weeks, we're going to be talking about several of those components. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about newness of life or new life, which is really important. And all of that is designed to help us flourish inside of God's family. Today, our, our focus is grace. That's what we're zooming in on. And before you, before you think you know what I'm about to talk about you don't. So please hear me out the whole way through. You see, grace is a familiar idea uh, within the church, at least in a particular light. Uh, Every one of us knows that we are saved by grace. Amen? We know that we're saved by grace. We know that that is because God chose to save humanity. His choice. He could have started over. He could have pressed the reset button a second time after the flood. He could have done all kinds of things, but he didn't do that. He chose to rescue us through his son. We also recognize that grace is unmerited. You and I did nothing to deserve this gift. Amen? We didn't do anything. We don't earn grace, and we also don't pay it back. We may live in honor of it, we may live a life that worships God because of that truth, but we didn't earn grace and we don't pay that grace back. Lastly, we, understood, uh, we understand that what's required of us when it comes to grace is a simple response to believe that God keeps his promises. Amen? And do you know that when you walk in faith, when you walk as though somebody is going to keep the promise they made to you, it will transform your actions. It will do things to the way you behave and the way you interact with them and with the rest of the world. And this is what the Christian life is supposed to reflect, that we are a people of faith. Because what? Faith without works is dead, right? And so faith with feet, that's what we're supposed to be. But there's so much more to grace than those kind of spiritual, uh, big-picture ideas, especially when we're living out the Christian life inside of community. Now, repeating the aforementioned truths about grace is all important, okay? But it isn't very productive when we're discussing it. It doesn't necessarily affect any change within us. They become principles or, or ideas that we accept, and then we just kind of move on with our life. We... If we heard those every Sunday, if that's all we ever heard about grace, what would happen is we'd feel like we went to church, we heard again the stuff that we learned when we first came to Jesus, and then uh, we'd just go feeling unchanged. We would not understand a practical side of grace, and we surely wouldn't understand its importance. So let me tell you right off the bat, uh, this side of grace that we're going to talk about today is the side of grace that people don't like. It's the side of grace that people don't like, and it's the side of grace that people don't like because it requires patience. It requires kindness. It requires humility. It requires less of you and more of the Jesus that you say resides inside of you, right? This is the side of grace that can get very uncomfortable, In a study done in 2009, Peter Oakes, who is a British scholar, concluded that if the Apostle Paul's house churches were composed of about 30 people, their approximate makeup would have been something like this. And before I jump into the makeup of this, I want you to understand that uh, we often read into the Bible when it talks about the church, we read our picture into that time like they had rows of chairs right? Like they had a pastor standing at a pulpit and talking to you. It, it just wasn't the way it was done, okay? And so you had the, these houses and they were comprised of people that, that came and went and you have to understand architecture of the time and how open floor plans worked in this time. But all of this is really important to understanding why grace is so important because people really did live life with each other in Paul's day, so what that makeup might have looked like would be a homeowner, usually a craft worker, his wife, their children, male and female slaves, and some dependent relative. Didn't matter who it was, but oftentimes a dependent relative. Uh, a widow, somebody like that. Next, because these were multifamily units, they would often house tenants with a similar makeup as that of the homeowner. So now you have like a, a dual housing unit, okay? But this is, this is kind of the way their architecture worked. There would also be a family, and this is specifically in Rome, but uh, they would also have a family that doesn't participate inside of the church, but they were probably renters of some kind. What's really amazing about this is it provided people to be on mission to right in front of you at all times, actually within the four walls. And you say, well, Nathan, that's inside the church. No, it's inside the home, and the home happened to be the church at times. Uh, there were also slaves who attended these gatherings, and they would attend without their owners, okay? Just remember that slavery looked very different than antebellum slavery in the South, okay? So finally, there were uh, likely a few homeless people that would drift in. Again, open floor plans or, or times when they would meet Meet together, these homeless people would be invited in, and then there were also other renters like migrant workers. That came through, they would work. If you want to study more on this, a very interesting book is uh, Reading Romans in Pompeii, Paul's letter at ground level. If you like that kind of thing, I highly encourage you to check that book out. It's amazing. So why do I share the composition of the church like that? Because this is an example, a true example of unlikes and difference coming together as a family. I mean, the broadest spectrum of people you could imagine coming together under one roof. This was the community in which one had to live and therefore show grace. When Paul reminds the masters of slaves that they too have a master in heaven, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, it was most likely in a context just like this. They literally had to treat the people that were their slaves well because they had a master in heaven. When Paul commands husbands and wives to love and respect each other, Ephesians 5:22 and 25, it was because this relationship was play every day in their life, i.e., in the church. It was in their home, right? When commanded to do good, Galatians 6:10 and to have a good reputation with those outside the church, 1 Timothy 3:7, One didn't have to go far for the opportunity and for outsiders. The outsiders to the church lived as insiders in the home. Do you see it? It's an amazing, amazing picture. All of this occurs under one roof. God's grace extends to the most practical areas of our life when we see this imagery. Right. Areas that we are not only given grace for, but expected to live out grace or show grace within And all of this is for the preservation of unity and the furtherance of the gospel. All of this. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Examples of this include the grace required to reach reconciliation with all those people living in your house. I've got four daughters. It's hard to live in reconciliation that way, right? (laughs) It's unbelievable. And you're supposed to live in reconciliation with two families living together and migrant workers coming to stay and that one family that doesn't want anything to do with your Jesus or other family members that think you're crazy because you've left, quote-unquote, left Judaism for something else, right? So we, we have reconciliation. We're supposed to bless people with whom we disagree or even those who are enemies or persecutors. Who knows what those other people who live in the house might think of your faith? Living at peace not only with the household of faith, but also with all of mankind. Again, as I've said a hundred times, insofar as it depends on you, you're supposed to live at peace with all people. It requires practical acts of grace. You don't walk around and go, well, I'm saved by grace, and you're fine. All of a sudden, it's like, I'm saved by grace, and God wants me to show grace to those around me. And grace is unmerited favor, and now I'm going to show favor to people that have no merit for it. As a matter of fact, these people might be enemies. They might be against me, but I'm supposed to do this. Meeting the needs of others in some form or fashion requires grace. Love for the people in your household requires grace, especially when it's defined according to 1 Corinthians 13. Scott McKnight uh, says that the first thing that you will see when grace takes over a person's life is a life shaped by love. Let us remember, let us remind ourselves that the challenge is to establish a grace-centered and grace-creating fellowship of difference. But a Christian life shaped for that kind of fellowship will require not only grace, but also love, which is where we're going to go next week. Stay tuned, though. I'm going to tell you what that's all about uh, at the end of the message. To see how these difference, uh, these different elements rather, of grace play out, it's meaningful for us to examine how God displays grace to us first and then how we're expected to be gracious towards one another. So if God says, for example, if God says uh, that he overlooked sins committed in ignorance, how many of you know that the Bible tells us that God, the holy righteous God, overlooked sins done in ignorance? Acts chapter 17 verse 30 and Romans chapter 3 verse 25. And how many of you know that the Bible says that God ontologically, in his essence, is love? He doesn't just act in love, he is love. So, if God overlooked sins committed in ignorance and he is love, then it should come as no surprise that we, as image bearers, are called to show grace and love to people in such a way that we cover a multitude of sins. That's amazing, right? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. This isn't easy, and this is why this is a part of grace that we don't like. It's not easy, but it is what we're supposed to do. And it's especially not easy if the sin that was committed was a sin committed against us. Yet we're still supposed to show grace. Because of all, uh, of all people, of all persons rather, God is the one who has never acted out a, a sinful act on his creation. And we have sinned against him, and yet he forgives us. And we look at it and go, well, I don't know if I can forgive them. Look at what they did to me. Look at what you've done to everyone else. Look at what you've done to the people that are supposedly closest to you. This is really, really important for us to grasp. So let's look at a small sampling of God's grace towards his creation. And at the same time, we're going to contemplate how we might share that grace with each other. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 27, uh, Thomas is is struggling, right? He needs to feel Jesus' scars in order to believe that the one who's standing before him is the Messiah and he has risen from the dead. I understand it's a hard thing to believe. Of resurrection right so God shows grace to him God doesn't say that's it you're a doubter go to hell he doesn't say that he says here you go Thomas and he shows him the scars and he lets him feel those pieces now is there is there utterance of blessed are those who believe without seeing and all this other stuff yes but I can, I can uh, warn you <laughs> that we don't understand that well we've made it a, a a bludgeoning tool to beat people with, right? Ah, your faith a meter's too low, so you're an idiot, right? This This is a problem that we do with this. But anyway, Thomas is shown grace by God. Here's the question for us. Do we have grace with people who doubt? Do we have grace with people who doubt our word when we say, believe me? And they go, I'm gonna have to see some evidence. Or do we write those people off? Think about it. Jesus, in all of his mercy, after he's crucified, and risen shows Thomas that kind of grace. In mark chapter 14 or John 21, Peter deserted Jesus, right? And then he becomes a key leader in God's church. Do we have grace on people who walk out on us when we need them most? It's exactly what Peter did to Jesus. He betrays him and denies him. And Jesus is like, still going to use you. Or do we do something different where we go, how dare you act like that? You're not a real good Christian, are you? Get out of my house. That's what we do. What a sad, sad state of affairs. Mark chapter 9, verse 24, the father of the mute boy who cries out, Lord, I believe, but help in my unbelief. And God helps him in his unbelief. This is an amazing level of grace. Are we willing to show grace with people who struggle with their faith? With their things that say, I trust Jesus, but I don't see this happening. And I need him to help me. Or do we go, well, you're not a really good Christian. I mean, how do we treat each other? Abraham negotiated with God over the fate of Sodom. He's questioning God, right? He's going, how about if there's five? Let's get down to one. I don't care, Lord. Let's, let's do this, right? Do we have grace with people who question our plans? Do you have daughters, any of you? I don't have grace when they question my plans. I'm like, oh, right? And they're my blood. It's really hard to do that outside of that. And yet God is like, i got grace for you. You don't understand what I understand. How about Jonah in Nineveh? Everybody loves to talk about the God of the Old Testament and how vicious and malicious and mean the God of the Old Testament is. But the fascinating thing is Jonah conveys what the God of the Old Testament truly was. A God of compassion and love. A God who was slow to anger. Right? Abundant in mercy. This is the God Jonah knew God to be. And he was like, I knew you'd forgive those dirtbags. And some of you guys, some of you guys have that problem. Some of you have seen somebody in your life, their world has been a mess. Their world that was a mess probably affected you and they were forgiven and you're like, hmm, dirtbag. Right? Because you're just like Jonah. Do we have grace with those who don't always want to show mercy? God showed grace to Jonah. God showed grace to Jonah. He also showed mercy and grace to Nineveh. But my goodness, Jonah's like, forget you. I'm not doing that. I'm going to go sail on a boat somewhere. Practical question. How many of you are avoiding forgiveness by taking vacation? (laughs) Right? Avoiding the people around you. Bad idea. Bad idea. Deal with it, right? The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. How do we handle walking into a blatant sin situation? Do we condemn those people or do we love people and call them to a higher way? I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Are we those people? Or are we the people, listen to me very clearly, are we the people that say, go and sin no more and I'll be watching? Because if you do it, then I'll condemn you. It's a bad way to be. It's not gracious. James and John and their misplaced zeal in Luke 9, 54, right? Uh, they're trying to call down fire from heaven on people. Idiots, right? We <laughs> you have grace for zeal without knowledge? I don't. I'm like, idiot, <laughs> right? And God goes, what is going on here? Both with me and with them, right? Grace to people that just miss it. You got a young Christian that comes in and they're filled with all this zeal but they don't understand things. And they start like plowing things down like a bull in a china shop. Do you have grace for them? Knowing that they just want to please God. They want to honor him. They want to do their best. Just so happens they're doing it wrong. Jesus' disciples arguing about who's going to be the most important. Luke 9 do we have grace for those who are vying for position? Or do we look at them and say, oh, I see, you're a brown noser. I don't have any use for you. Is that what we do? Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 2, do we have grace for those who don't understand theological concepts? Or do we go, I'm sorry, I pity you for being stupid. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have a problem. Jesus works with those who are Wanting to learn. Jesus works with those who will submit to him. Uh, Jesus on the cross. The best example, I believe, of all grace. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's so much that can be talked about with regard to what that means. But do we have grace for the world when they don't understand what they're accomplishing for God's kingdom? They don't even realize that some of the the stupid actions they're doing God is using for good. Do we have grace for them? Jesus forgives all of us while hanging on that cross. And we're like, nah, that's just too much. I can't fellowship with you. I can't talk to you. These are just a few examples, guys. And the list goes on and on. So what does this look like for us? How do we show grace toward one another? The short answer, it's a lot of work. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of love. And by the way, love and work are often synonymous. It's a lot of patience. It's a lot of trust. It's a lot of trust that God is working behind the scenes. And it's a whole lot of humility. But here's what I observe in church. I just don't like that person's personality, so I won't go around them. Well, good for you. Judgmental person. It's not good. It's not good. You fold your hands and you you pretend that you're better in some way. This isn't gracious. This isn't kind. This isn't loving. This isn't what Jesus would do. Anybody who is here for the devotional, this might be what James would do, but it's not what Jesus would do, right? (laughs) It's really, really important, guys, that we start to learn this. I wish I could give you 10 easy steps to preserving unity, but there is no such formula, no matter what the preacher tells you. Instead, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to read you two examples, two examples that I believe illustrate God's grace towards people as well as grace from people to people or our grace to one another. The first one comes from... um, Scott McKnight's book, A Fellowship of Difference, which is a great book, by the way, and he refers to, um, he tells a story of a famous person that you'll know. Here's how the story goes. In World War I, in France, some English military were struck by German fire. Harry Ayers was killed while the man next to him lived. The man who survived was Jack, or as he was named by his parents, Clive Staples, as in C.S. Lewis, the one we love. Alan Jacobs, an expert on Lewis, observed that the pre-conversion Lewis was neither a particularly likable nor a particularly interesting person. <laughs> That's awesome. We can't see that in C.S. Lewis, right? In his infamous Mere Christianity, Lewis insightfully describes the great sin as pride of sel- or self-conceit. Lewis says it is the complete anti-God state of mind. And he knew it by experience that anti-God state of mind was his state of mind. What Jacob said of Lewis in his middle teens can perhaps fit most of his pre-conversion life. He was a, quote, thoroughly obnoxious, arrogant, condescending, intellectual prig. (laughs) I am using that. As an insult from now on. Anyway, okay. (laughs) Not very gracious, huh? Anyway, okay. As a teenager, Lewis became an atheist but irreverently faked his way through a confirmation at his father's church in now Northern Ireland. He was later to say, the man Yeshua or Jesus did actually exist. But all the other tomfoolery about virgin birth, magic healings, apparitions, and so forth is on exactly the same footing as any other mythology, end quote. As a young man, he had to say this about Christianity and any religious faith. They are, quote, a kind of endemic nonsense into which humanity tended to blunder. That was his view of religion. And he said of God that he was, quote, a bogey who is prepared to torture me forever and ever, end quote. <laughs> Reflecting on his time in World War I, when asked if he was afraid, Lewis's steely resistance to God finds its way in a timeless expression of hubris. All the time, he said, but I never sank so low as to pray. As an Oxford student to a friend, Lewis cried out in an angry crescendo, you take too many things for granted. You can't start with God. I don't accept God. I've had those arguments with atheists many, many times. In his first book, Spirits in Bondage, and well before his conversion, we find this cold-blooded verse expressing C.S. Lewis's anti-God state of mind. You ready? Listen to this. Come, let us curse our master ere we die. For all our hopes in endless ruin lie. The good is dead. Let us curse God most high. That's C.S. Lewis, guys. Hmm, interesting. In his journey, Lewis became aware of how arrogant he really was. In a letter to Leo Baker, one of his friends, Lewis comes clean with a minimal concession to God. I love this expression. I have stopped defying heaven. It can't know less than I. Wow, that's powerful, right? From arrogance, however, he moved to surrender. A famous passage in Surprised by Joy divulges his awareness that God was becoming present to Lewis. Listen to what he says here. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene his college at Oxford, night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I had so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared, God, had at last come upon me. On September 19th of 1931, Lewis entered into a late-night discussion with his friends J.R.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson that took him one step closer to his Christian faith. When they revealed to him that his love of myth should have led him to love the story about Jesus' dying and rising, Lewis took another step. God had become present in Lewis's inner world. But that night, Christ knocked on his door. During a trip to the Whipsnay Zoo, Lewis opened the door to Jesus Christ as the true Son of God and let him in. All at once, life made sense, or as Lewis put it later in in his inimitable way, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. What's fascinating about that story is that it displays both God's grace towards Lewis even while Lewis mocks him. Curse God most high? Staggering, right? Right? But it also shows the grace of all of Lewis's friends with his arrogance and his hubris. As Lewis uh, is cocky and pushing his ideas and his agendas on people, they simply patiently walk with him through his journey. The question that I have for you is can we do this? Can we do this with each other? Let's put the skeptic out of the doors of the church just for a second. We want to welcome them in. But let's put them out of the doors of the church just for a second. What about those within the church that simply don't understand or believe in your creed, your confession, your theory, your idea? Are you okay? Or do you just go find a church where you can huddle up with the sames and the likes? It's a challenge but this is exactly what the church today does. I really do believe, church, I really do believe that much of the organized church has been its own downfall. I I have engaged with people in a far more robust, far more gracious, far more uh, uh, explanatory and deep fashion, sitting at a jujitsu gym, Than I have in most churches. And I've been a professional Christian for 21 years. It's unbelievable how we've done with this. Am I advocating we abandon all the things that we've done and go back to home churches? No, I've seen most of those kill each other. Because all that happens there is the person who starts the home church wants to be the pope of their own world too. The problem lies in me and I have to work on me. The way we show grace to one another is we start with, as Michael Jackson said, the man in the mirror. Never thought you'd hear a preacher quote Michael Jackson, (laughs) did you? It's amazing, though. We have to start there. I was in a conversation on a Tuesday night with the leadership team, and It was kind of one of those after-hours conversations, and we were talking about how uh, we see Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 uh, play out, where we see all these people having all things in common, and they loved each other, and they cared for each other, and the question was presented or posed, how do we accomplish this? As if I have an answer, (laughs) but uh, how do we accomplish this, and I do at least have one side of the answer. And that is, you don't accomplish that or grace or anything else in the Christian life by legislating it. You accomplish it by doing it yourself. If you want to have all things in common with the people around you, good. Give everything you have to them. But until you do it, shut it. Until you do it, it's never going to work. Until you do it, don't complain that your neighbor isn't doing it. This is what political systems try to do, right? They try to legislate the system. But here's how you start to show grace. Here's how the church begins to be a gracious uh, entity. You show grace, and I'll show grace, and I'll do it for me. I'll do it on my time. I will do it to glorify my king and my savior. That's what needs to happen, right? So it starts with me. It starts with me. C.S. Lewis was shown grace by God. C.S. Lewis was shown immense grace by uh, by his friends and the people around him. And the question that's present to us is, can we show that level of grace to the world around us? The second story is the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. We've got Paul and Ananias, and I'm going to skip the part of this amazing transformation that Paul goes through and being blinded by God and all of this cool stuff, and I want to get to just the practical stuff where uh, where God starts dealing with Ananias. He says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord, and the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. If you remember, Paul had been uh, struck blind by God. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your servants in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is chosen, a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying his hands on him, Brother Saul said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and he was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? And who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Ananias is listening to God, who is showing grace to the apostle Paul, who is literally a murderer of his people. God saves Paul and then sends a Christian who knows of Paul's past and says, you're supposed to anoint him. You're supposed to pray for him. He's going to be healed, and then you're going to see him do great things. God was gracious to Paul, and Ananias was gracious to Paul. He still asked questions. I think you would, too, if you were like, go pray for that murderer. (laughs) Anyway, right? So go pray for the murderer. Okay, so he goes, and he has grace on that person, right? Now... Check this out for a second. I know what some can think in this situation. You divorce yourself from a personal situation, and you go, I could pray for a murderer tomorrow. What if it was a murderer of your people? Don't don't think for a second you could do it, because you're awesome. If you're Ananias, and your very own brothers and sisters are being killed, you're going, are you serious? Right? Are you? Wait, hold on. This is brutal, Lord. What are you telling me to do? And the Lord is saying, I want you, and this is amazing. Ananias, I want you to be your namesake. Do you know what the name Ananias means? The name Ananias means that God shows grace. Right? The Lord is full of grace is the meaning. The Lord is full of grace. Ananias, I want you to be who I am. Full of grace. Why does he want you to be that? Why does he want us to be this? Because we are a fellowship and a celebration of difference from every walk of life, from every creed, every confession, every background. And God goes, I will save you all. And I will ask you to be my family. And I will ask you to love each other. You want to know what I find to be the biggest problem in the church today? We can't even get along because we don't like people's personalities, let alone somebody who murdered our people, let alone somebody who has done atrocious things to people. We are so opinionated, church. Did you know that? Turn to the person next to you and say, you are so opinionated. My mom and dad who are married for 46 years today are like, we've said this to each other for 46 years, (laughs) right? You are so opinionated. The truth is you are. And if you're resisting the idea that I'm presenting, you're proving my point. being uh, less than gracious at this moment. No. Jesus can call people out and say you're a fool. He can call people out and say you're a faithless, perverse generation and he's doing that to wake them up. Don't be so quick to believe that when somebody calls you out they're lacking grace. They might just be telling you what you needed to hear. When and if they walk away from you after that, you can talk about whether or not they were gracious. But discipline is not a lack of grace. Discipline is a Beautiful display of love. We are opinionated, church. It has caused most of the division we have. And here's what we do with our opinions. We hold them and we say that no other opinion will work besides our own. And we act as though it's a matter of life and death in every doctrinal idea and every particular practice of the Christian faith. And so when we put everything into the camp of the most important things... We can't surrender on any level, and we divide, and we split, and the world laughs at us. I have people in my gym who um, openly mock Christianity, openly. They like doing it, too. And I've always been fascinated with why atheists hate the God that doesn't exist so much, but i it's fascinating to me that Will mock. Okay? And then I've got people in the gym that are people you would never expect to have any belief whatsoever. You would think that they would openly mock God, and they are, they are deeply reverent. They're deeply ignorant, but they're deeply reverent, right? Both groups and everybody in between, and even if somebody believes, my responsibility, show them grace. My responsibility, be gracious. If somebody wants to mock my God, what does it matter? I, I love what, um, I believe it was Augustine who originally penned the statement and C.S. Lewis adapted it later, which was cool. And that was, um, do you know how to defend a lion? You don't, you just let him out of his cage, right? God doesn't need your help. You don't have to protect him. Right? He's, he's unbelievable, <laughs> right? What you ought to do is Tell of his goodness. What you ought to do is show his graciousness through your life. Amen? So in conclusion to this, as a celebration of difference, it requires grace. Grace is what's going to help us preserve unity. Grace is extremely practical. I want to end our time with two passages of Scripture that I think Really put feet to our faith when it comes to grace and when it comes to uh, this unity, this celebration of difference. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, we're opinionated And one of the problems in the church today is we're backbiting and we're constantly complaining about people. And here's how it often comes. Oh, yeah, I know so and so. They're a great person. But, and there's always something after the but. Right? This is not good. This is not good. Let no corrupt speech come from your mouth. And listen, when you experience it, strongest way I can say it, shut it down. Shut it down. You wouldn't want it if it was being said about you. You shouldn't say it about others. And if other people are saying it about someone to you, shut it down. Be a good friend. Be a good representative of Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, And patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's as practical as it gets, church. Be compassionate, be kind to one another, be humble. You don't know all that you think you know. Be gentle, be patient, bear with one another, forgive. But don't just forgive in any way, forgive like Jesus forgave. I told you guys, this level of grace is a very complicated thing. And it's the type of grace we don't want to talk about because of that very reason. It's just complicated. But when we do it, church, guess what we're preserving? unity. We are preserving unity. We are going to see the church look different than she does because we are gracious with each other. We are compassionate with each other. We love one another truly.